Well, this morning we're getting back into our series in the book of Mark. We've taken a little bit of a break uh, over the Christmas season. We went through our, our Advent series through the book of Ruth, focusing on hope for a weary world. And we certainly do have hope indeed. Our hope is not finished because the Christmas season is finished. We have hope today because Jesus Christ is still on his throne. And then after that, as we begin uh, the start of 2024, Pastor Michael has been preaching through a series on our vision as a church for 2024. And as we look ahead, we are going to be wrapping up our series here in Mark over the next several weeks. But just to catch us up, we are, we're back in the book of Mark. And you may recall back in Mark chapter 11, as we were studying in the fall, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem. Throughout the book of Mark, there's this movement as Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, the place where he would end up being arrested and soon crucified. And as Jesus entered into Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11, that passage is famously referred to as the triumphal entry. As Jesus enters into the city, he is greeted essentially as a king. People are shouting Hosanna as he's entering in. They're laying down palm branches. It is really a ritual fit for for a king. And over the next several days, as he is spending time in Jerusalem, this week that is often referred to as Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life prior to his crucifixion, over the next several days, Jesus would challenge the authority of the scribes and the Pharisees. He would call out their self-righteousness, and he would set into motion what would end up resulting in, in his death, as Jesus made many enemies in Jerusalem that week, as he had been throughout his earthly ministry. And as we come to Mark chapter 11, this passage is famously referred to as the Olivet Discourse. It's a passage that to some is exciting and to some is rather frightening. Because the primary topic at hand here is the end of all time. And even just saying that, some of you may tense up just a little bit. You may think, was this the best Sunday to roll out of bed and to come to church this morning? I, I am so glad that you have joined us this morning. I pray and hope that this message this morning will be a real comfort to you and an encouragement to you. As we consider the teachings of Jesus, this is the longest section in the Gospels uh, as Jesus teaches about the end times. This is the longest section throughout all of the Gospels in which Jesus focuses on preparing his disciples for the end. And throughout Mark 13, Jesus instructs his followers to be on guard, to be alert, to stay awake. He's seeking to prepare them for the days ahead. Now, throughout our series in the book of Mark, we've been asking this question. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? In this passage, we see that Jesus seeks to prepare his disciples for the end that is to come. And it's easy for us to look at this passage and to respond and maybe One of three different ways. I think that when we consider the end time, some people think through this topic very apathetically. That is, they don't want to consider the end. In fact, it's better if you don't talk to me about it at all. uh, Ignorance is bliss when it comes to thinking about the end. uh, A very apathetic approach. Some react to topics about the end times very arrogantly. Thinking, I've got it all figured out. There's nothing else you can teach me on. In fact, I'm ready to give a whole seminar on my view on the end times. But then some react very fearfully. They hear that the end is coming, and it creates all kind of panic inside of their hearts. Worry, anxiety. And this morning, I don't think that as we study through Mark 13, that this would 
Any of these three reactions would be the reaction that Jesus would want us to have. But instead, I think that he wants us to consider the end, prepare for the end, and prepare to be faithful to the end. Knowing that the end is in sight, it is coming one day. And rather than panicking, being arrogant, or being apathetic, we instead should trust Jesus. To trust that his timing, his plan is perfect. We can look to him and find comfort. And so as we consider that, that big question about who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him, Jesus is instructing his followers here to follow him to the end of the age and to be faithful. And there's a great lesson here for us today. So if you want just the big idea of our, our message this morning, it's this. Whether we face destruction, deception, disaster, or persecution, we ought to be enduring servants and faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. I think that if we were to look at this passage, verses 1 through 13, and try to summarize what is Jesus trying to teach us here, what is Jesus wanting to prepare us for here, it would be to remain an enduring servant and a faithful witness, no matter what we experience in the days ahead. And through this passage, we do see that there will be destruction. There will be deception. There will be disaster, and there will be persecution. I know that those four words are not the most cheerful words to discuss on a Sunday morning. Uh, we would much rather talk about how great it is to follow Jesus, how sweet it is to have fellowship with Jesus. But this is what we need to understand, is that when we choose to follow Jesus Christ, we are confronted with all kinds of opposition. We are confronted with all kinds of struggles. Yes, we have a very sweet fellowship with our Lord and Savior, but that fellowship will not be one that avoids any kind of tribulation or difficulty. Following Jesus is, in fact, hard, but it is incredibly rewarding. There is so much joy in following him, no matter what it is we face. So the question is, how will you respond when you face difficulty? When the world opposes you because you follow Jesus, what will you do? What are you doing right now as the world opposes you, as you seek to follow Jesus? And how will you prepare for the days ahead as it seems that the world will continue to oppose us for our faith in Jesus Christ. I want to offer just three encouragements to us as we look at this passage this morning. Encouragement number one, destruction will come. So don't cling to this world. Destruction will come. Don't cling to this world. Just a, a word really quick about prophetic and apocalyptic literature, because that's what we have here. Prophetic literature. Jesus is offering a prophecy about what is to come in the days ahead. Apocalyptic. He's focusing on the end of all time, as we'll discuss here in, in just a, a matter of moments. But in many of the biblical prophecies, prophecies are fulfilled in two ways. There is a, a near fulfillment. That is, the prophecy is going to be soon fulfilled. Uh, sometimes it will be fulfilled in the immediate hearer's lifetime. Sometimes it won't, but it will happen sometime in the not-so-far future. So there's a near fulfillment. In many of these prophecies, there's also a distant fulfillment. 
That is, the prophecy will be fulfilled at a later time, even though it will still be fulfilled to some degree in a more immediate time. It most likely, however, will not be fulfilled during that hearer's lifetime. So the near fulfillment, we need to understand, it also often serves as a picture to point ahead to the future fulfillment. It may represent what is going to be that distant fulfillment later on. And here in this passage, Jesus prophesies about the destruction of the temple. You see, what was so wonderful would soon be destroyed. We have here this unknown disciple. I'd love to know who it is. There's all kinds of speculation about it. I love to think that it's maybe Bartholomew just because he's not mentioned anywhere else really in, in the gospel. So I think that Bartholomew deserves his his time here, moment to shine, but I have no basis for that at all, so that's just speculation. But we don't know who this disciple is, but he has an eye for architecture, uh, which I, I can really admire about him. Uh, truly, the, the temple would have been magnificent. As they're walking out of the temple, they're exiting the temple, and the disciples are, are walking around with Jesus, looking around, and, and this one unknown disciple, he sees the temple and he beholds the, the glory, the magnificence of the temple. See, this, this temple really, it's debated, is it the second temple or the third temple? The first temple was built by Solomon, but it was destroyed. The second temple was built by Zerubbabel, but it had fallen into bad disrepair after the exile. Was, it was rebuilt, but then it had fallen into bad disrepair. So then this temple here was either uh, kind of a reconstruction project, or it was just a new temple altogether. But it was built... Uh, or expanded upon by Herod the Great. Herod the Great, not necessarily a great guy, but he was, in fact, a great builder. Um, that's often one of the reasons why people refer to him in that way. And one commentator had mentioned that the temple made up about one-sixth of the city of Jerusalem. So something that would have been truly a spectacle in the city. It was made of, of large white stones, beautiful gold, decorated very wonderfully, uh, if we were to travel back to that day, we would have been walking through and just being amazed by everything that we see. Uh, you walk through, you see the architecture, the landscape, and you're just captivated by the beauty of it all. It would have been truly an amazing sight to behold. But Jesus took these comments by this unknown disciple, and he used it as a teaching opportunity. Jesus asks, do you see these, these great buildings? In other words, Take a good look. Look around at everything that you see. Take it in. Isn't it marvelous? You like that? You like everything that you see here? And then he kind of lays a, a truth bomb on him in that moment. Yeah, you see everything here? It's all going to be destroyed one day. It's like, wow, that's a really encouraging message there. Jesus, can you just like appreciate the moment? And I'm sure that Jesus appreciated the moment. He certainly had an eye for beauty, being the creator of the universe himself. He created some very beautiful things. But Jesus wanted to take a moment to prepare his disciples for what was to come. And he used this as a transition to teach them about the days ahead. He says in verse 2, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus revealed that the temple, ultimately, this thing that the Jews loved, was a place where they met with God. This place of meeting was temporary. And Jesus' prophecy would soon be fulfilled very shortly after his death, his resurrection, and ascension. See, the Romans, led by General Titus, destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. So Jesus' prophecy, it would soon be fulfilled. 
and the destruction of the temple was truly devastating for the Jews. But what we need to understand here is that Jesus' prophecy about the temple, uh, the temple's imminent destruction, it also points to a distant destruction. One that is coming at a later time. The temple's destruction was a near fulfillment, but there is a distant fulfillment still to come. And just as the temple was temporary, we need to understand that this world is temporary. This world is temporary, and everything in this world is, in fact, temporary. Just as the temple was destroyed, this world will also one day be destroyed. Even this week, I was thinking about how wonderful it is that we have a provision of this wonderful building here at WCA. Uh, and it's, it's great that we have a place now where we can meet on Sunday mornings. And then as I was thinking about this text, I thought, man, WCA was one day going to be destroyed. And every beautiful place of worship on this planet will one day be destroyed. Either it'll come to ruin through uh, natural causes, natural disasters, there'll be wars. Uh, even thinking about World War II and some of the, the bombings that happened over in, in Europe. Some wonderful places of worship were destroyed no longer standing to this day, in rubble. And it's just another reminder that the things of this world, everything here, is temporary. That nothing here right now is eternal. Just as the temple was destroyed, this world will soon be destroyed. I think it's helpful to consider what Danny Aiken says about this passage. He said, they, that is the disciples, did not expect a long interval between the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. But Jesus does not address the issue of timing, though he does use the soon coming destruction of the temple and Jerusalem as a type of foreshadowing of end time events. The imminent destruction of the temple is the lens through which we should view the distant destruction of this present evil age and the return of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus. So as we think about this passage, as we consider these things, we should see that the destruction of the temple was the near fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. But there is still coming a future or a distant fulfillment in which the end of the age is on the way. And when it comes, what is temporary will be undone. It will be destroyed. And I love Revelation chapter 21. It's perhaps one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. But Revelation 21 is a sobering reminder for us. As we see in that that passage that the heavens and the earth... As they stand, as they exist today, the heavens and the earth will pass away and will be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. The things as we know them right now, they will be undone for it's temporary. And it will one day be replaced by something far better, something permanent, something eternal. But just for an encouragement, as we consider these things, I'd encourage every one of us this morning, don't cling to this world. Just as the temple was temporary, just as this world is temporary, we need to remember that the things of this world, the satisfaction that this world provides, all of it is temporary. Back in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You know, it's so easy to get fixated on the things of this world. It's so easy to wake up in the morning to think about your to-do list for the day. It's so easy to, to go to work and to think about the projects that you have to take care of or the team that you have to lead and forget that eternity is coming. 
It's easy to plan out your vacations, thinking through uh, where are we going to go, how much money do we need to spend, and forget that all of the things in this world are temporary. The joys that we experience are temporary. The achievements that we reach are temporary. The satisfaction that we experience here and now, all of which is temporary. It's such a sobering reminder. And we can pursue a lot of wonderful things in this world. I'm so glad that God has given us so many wonderful gifts here in this life. But we shouldn't seek our ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world. But instead, we ought to look beyond this world. To the things not that, that are, that are uh, to look beyond the things that are seen to the things that are unseen. The things that will last through the destruction of this age. For heaven and earth may pass away here and now, but there's coming a new creation. And that's where we should seek our joy, our hope, our satisfaction is with Jesus Christ in that new creation. And we have to wake up every single morning knowing this life may be hard, this life may be difficult, but this life is temporary. And man, praise God that it is. Because this life is hard. It is very difficult waking up knowing you're going to face struggles today. Knowing that you're going to wake up and your back is going to ache a little bit. That your knees are going to be a little bit sore. But this is as, for a believer, this is as bad as it will ever be. Praise God. That is such a wonderful thing. But we shouldn't get fixated or have tunnel vision on this world. But we need to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Glory awaits. So let's not cling to this world. Let's not cling to the things of this world. Finding our ultimate joy and satisfaction here in this place, we should always be living this life with one eye on the next life. Scratch that. Let's make it two eyes on the next life. So that we're focused so much on heaven. Uh, I even heard someone say, there are some Christians out there who are so focused on the next life that they're no good in this life. And I don't know entirely what they meant by that, but I can get behind it, I think. <laughs> that we should be so fixated on that next life that it transforms everything that we do right here and right now. But you may be thinking, okay, uh, that's wonderful, that's great, but when will this happen? When is all this taking place? I think this is probably the number one question that people ask when they think about the end times, as they think about the destruction of the age. When are these things going to happen, and what are the signs going to be? Uh, and uh, it's easy to sympathize with the disciples here because those are the exact same questions that they ask. So you're in good company as we consider these things it only makes sense that we would naturally want to know when, when is this going to happen? How will I know? How can I be certain that these things are about to take place? And I think that in asking that question, there's this sense that we want to be prepared. I don't think that it's entirely driven out of fear. I think there is a sense in which we want to be prepared. But Jesus goes on to show us that knowing the time and the events, knowing the order of these things, that's not the best way to prepare for it. We don't, in fact, need to know those details in order to be prepared for when it comes. See, Jesus doesn't fully answer the question of the disciples, and he doesn't always fully answer our questions. Because Jesus doesn't always give the answers that his disciples want, but he gives the answers that they need. And that's such an encouragement to me that sometimes Jesus doesn't give me the answers that I want. But he does, in fact, give me the answers that I need. So instead of answering their questions about when these things are going to happen, he seeks to prepare them for the days ahead with the kind of preparation that they need. 
between verses 5 and 37 throughout uh, Mark chapter 13, Jesus makes 19 different imperative statements. He offers 19 different commands in order to prepare them to look ahead for what's coming next. He shares some signs about what will happen at the end, but he's mostly concerned with preparing them to be faithful to the end. So our, our next encouragement, number two here, deception and disaster will come. Remain faithful to Christ. Deception and disaster will come. Remain faithful to Christ. Jesus says there's going to be destruction. There's also going to be deception. There's going to be disaster. All of these things are coming. See that no one leads you astray, verse 5. To say that in, in a positive way. Don't let anyone lead you astray. Don't let anyone convince you to follow someone other than Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone lead you away from Christ. To say that positively, remain faithful to Jesus. No matter who seeks to lead you astray, no matter who seeks to, to tempt you to believe something else, be faithful to Christ. We see deception will come. Jesus prophesied that many false messiahs would be on the way. In fact, even before Jesus Christ stepped on the scene of human history, there were many false messiahs who claimed to be the one. They all died. Their followers were scattered and their movement came to an end. Even after Jesus, there were many more who claimed to come in Jesus' name, to come or who proclaimed that they were, in fact, servants of the Lord, but they had no intention of leading others to God. But they sought to deceive others, to lead them astray. They claimed to be from God, but they did not lead others to God. They would seek to deceive, to tempt, to lead away from Jesus. And we see here that this prophecy has already, in some ways, been fulfilled. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John, who is one of the apostles who was hearing Jesus here, says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And I think that when we get into discussions about the end times, people freak out about that word Antichrist. And one of the things that kind of releases some relief for us is to know that many Antichrists have already come. That is, many who have already rejected Jesus. See, John declares that many Antichrists have already come. And then in verse 19, the following verse, he clarifies, they went out from us. I believe that's talking about those who he considers the Antichrist who have come. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So nearly 2,000 years ago, John knew that he was living in the last days. That he was living in the end times. And sometimes people will ask me this question, do you think that we're living in the end times? And I'll emphatically say, yes. Yes, I do. And I think we've been living in the end times for about 2,000 years now. And that is that we're living in the end and what's to come next is Jesus' arrival. He's going to come back the second advent. And he's not coming as a humble baby anymore. But he's coming as a conquering king to put an end to this evil age. And that is our hope as Christians. How this world is coming to an end and Jesus is going to make all things right. Therefore, we can continue to endure in faithfulness. We can remain faithful to the Lord. This news really shouldn't come as a shock to us that we're living in the end. 
But what should matter to us is living faithfully until the end. We see, though others may seek to deceive us, we must remain faithful to Christ. That's the best way for us to prepare for the end, is to remain faithful to Jesus. So we live in an age that is full of deceivers, and kind of a a popular word here in our world at the moment is deconstructioners. We live in a, a world now where people want to break our faith, lead us away from Jesus Christ, either present to you a false version of Jesus, a more palatable version of Jesus who doesn't take sin seriously or who is not fully God, but is just a good moral teacher and example for us. All kinds of false perceptions of Jesus out there. There are also those who would like to tell you that the Bible is false, that it has many errors, that it is not a faithful guide. That those who have taught you God's word are selfish and arrogant and haughty, and you shouldn't trust them. You shouldn't trust any authority who speaks on the behalf of God. So what are we to do? When we live in a world full of deception, when we live in a world where people seek to deconstruct our faith, how can we be certain that we are not led astray? I offer just two encouragements for us here. That is to remain faithful in God's word. That's our first encouragement, to remain faithful in God's word. How can we be certain that we are not led astray? It's by remaining faithful in God's word, by reading it, by soaking it up, by meditating on it, by memorizing it. The best way to guard yourself against deception is to know what God's word says. Uh, My father-in-law once told me that the FBI... In order to spot counterfeit money, they don't look for all of the different ways that you could possibly be deceived with a fake dollar bill. But what they do is they look at an original. They study it. They get a grip on the texture of it. They make certain that they know what is genuine so that whenever they spot something that is counterfeit, they'll be able to say, this is not what is genuine. This is something that is false because they know what is true. They know it so well that they could spot any deviation from what is true and what is genuine. I say that to remind us that if you want to spot deception, you want to spot false teaching, the best way to do that is to know what is true, to know what is genuine, to know God's word, to stand upon it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, to know it. If you know God's word, you will be better prepared when deception comes. You'll be better prepared to spot a false witness. You'll be better prepared when someone seeks to deconstruct your faith or to tell you that's not the way that it is. That's not who Jesus is. You'll be able to look back to Scripture and stand firm upon what you know to be true. By knowing God's word, you can spot counterfeit messages. But then the second encouragement, uh, so the first one, remain faithful in God's word. The second one, remain faithful in Christian community. Don't try to be faithful to Christ alone. There is no lone wolf Christianity. When you are saved by the grace of God, you are saved into a Christian family. You have brothers and sisters who are ready to stand with you, standing against all kinds of opposition, entrenching themselves in warfare with you as soldiers for Christ. God has given you a Christian community, this church. 
Church, we need to stand with one another for Jesus Christ in a dark and an evil age. That we might lift one another up. That we might encourage brothers and sisters who are being pounded at work because of their faith. Who are really struggling because on their, their university campus, it is not popular to stand for Christ. So they're discouraged. They're battle-worn. Brothers and sisters, we need to stand together. We need to lift one another up. I don't know much about animals. What I do know about animals, I, I most likely learned from the National Geographic channel at sleepovers when I was 12 years old at 2 in the morning. So my knowledge is not very extent. Uh, and specifically with when it comes to lions, I, I really don't know much other than they're big, strong, and they'd kill me if they had the chance. But what I do know about, about lions uh, at least what I think I know about lions, is that when they go hunting, they don't go and immediately attack a strong herd. But when they go and they approach their prey, they look for a straggler. They look for one who's kind of fallen behind the pack. They look for someone who's gone off on their own. Someone who's fallen behind, someone who's wandered. But they don't attack the pack when the pack is at its strength. Because there's strength in numbers. First Peter verse 5 verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If you want to stand firm in your faith, you should not do faith alone. You shouldn't wander from the pack that we have the Christian community that we have, the church is a gift against deception. It is a gift against false teaching. It is a gift so that we can stand strong in a very evil, dark, and in many ways tempting world. Where we can be lifted up, encouraged, and strengthened by brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me just step back for a moment and also say that if you do not know Jesus... If you don't know him, if you've been captivated by the messages of this world, seeking hope, seeking joy and satisfaction, let me just tell you, you're not going to find it in the things of this world. You will only find hope, joy, and ultimately eternal satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And if you're looking for hope on your own, you're not going to find it. If you're seeking to stand up in this world, you will fall if you're standing on your own. But God has given us much grace. Grace through his son, Jesus Christ, by whom we can be saved from our sin, completely forgiven. And through whom we also receive a family of brothers and sisters that can encourage us, and lift us up, and go to battle with us in a dark world around us. So I encourage you, if you don't know Jesus, today would be a great day to find out who he is. Today would be a great day to turn from your sin and to trust in him and to receive not just eternal satisfaction, but to receive a family right here in this church. So we know that deception is going to come. We also know that disaster will come. 
Disaster will come in multiple forms. Jesus says there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. Nations and kingdoms will rise up against each other. There will be natural disasters, earthquakes, famines. These disasters are not the end themselves, but serve as a reminder that the end is coming. And just as a reminder to us, disaster has already come. In some regards, this prophecy has already been fulfilled. Disaster came shortly after Jesus' prophecy. There were wars, there were rumors of wars, there were famines, there were other natural disasters. Because disaster has come throughout human history. Just in the last century alone, there were two great world wars. I was talking with someone recently, uh, and we were thinking about this passage. I'm thinking about how some people get so worried and anxious because there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And we just stepped back for a moment and we reflected on that and we thought... Yeah, that's true. There are going to be wars. There are going to be rumors of wars. But brothers and sisters have faced this throughout human history as well. And there may be an extent to which wars and rumors of wars intensify. We also know that this is going to be life in a fallen and broken world. So when we hear the news, when we turn on the TV, when you pick up the newspaper, when you scroll through your social media feed, you don't need to be worried or anxious. Jesus says in verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. And I love that. It's almost like Jesus gets us. It's almost like he knows that we're tempted and prone to panic. He knows. Don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Jesus has all these things in his hands. He's planned it all out. That should be an encouragement to us. Do not be alarmed. When disaster strikes, trust God and remain faithful to Christ. God has already determined how everything is going to play out. I love Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10. It says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I shall accomplish all my purposes. And I love that because it reminds me that Jesus doesn't get surprised by the news headlines. He doesn't give in to the fear-mongering that happens in our world. He doesn't fret. He doesn't grow discouraged. He doesn't think, oh man, that's, that's really going to mess up my plans. I didn't think that was going to happen. And God is the God who declares the end from the beginning. He knows all things. He has set all things into motion and he is working out all things to accomplish his purposes and his plans. Therefore, we can trust him. No matter what disaster comes in the days ahead, we can trust God. We can trust that he has a sovereign plan. He has good purposes. So church, let's keep trusting him. Let's remain faithful to him no matter what comes our way. Destruction will come. Don't cling to this world. Deception and disaster will come. Remain faithful to Christ. And our final encouragement, persecution will come. Keep witnessing and enduring. So Jesus prophesied that his disciples would be persecuted. Persecution will come. It will be on the way. And their persecution would come in a variety of different forms. See in verse 9, they would be delivered over to councils. They would be beaten in synagogues. Verse 11, they would be dragged before political officials and put on trial. They would even experience betrayal from their own families. They would be killed by the hands of their loved ones. 
They'll be hated by all because of their allegiance to Jesus. And they surely would be persecuted in a variety of different ways. Church history tells us that all of the apostles, except for maybe John, were martyred for their faith. But then even John was exiled on an island where he would spend the rest of his days. See, Peter was crucified upside down. He chose that death because he thought it was un- he was unworthy to die in the same manner as Jesus Christ. Paul would make his way to Rome where he would seek to proclaim the gospel. And there he would be beheaded for his faith. James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown off the temple. And some say that he was maybe still alive after he had fallen, so then he was beaten with clubs to death. Some were pierced through with spears. Others were stoned. At least one more was burned to death. All the apostles of of Jesus Christ. And they were persecuted primarily because they followed Jesus. You see, disciples of Jesus will be persecuted in every age. Just as the apostles were persecuted as a near fulfillment of this prophecy, we also understand that Christians, believers, are going to be persecuted in every age. Why? Believers will be persecuted because Jesus himself was persecuted. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, verse 20, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which they did, they will also persecute you. So know that if you suffer as a servant of Christ, you suffer because of the one who suffered in your place on the cross. Our persecution that we experience now because Jesus Christ was persecuted first and we serve a suffering Messiah one who endured the cross for us let me just say it is better to endure a little pain with Christ than to endure an eternity of torment apart from him as we consider the sufferings of this world as we consider the persecution that may come to us down the road it is better to endure a little bit of pain with Christ than an eternity of torment apart from him. The suffering that we experience in this life as believers will be the worst we ever experience. Because when this life comes to an end, either by death or by Jesus returning, there will be no more pain, no more tears, and no more suffering for the servants of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. And so as we look ahead to potential persecution down the road, We can say, suffering for Jesus is worth it. I will endure. I will be faithful. And this is the worst it will ever be. We can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Believers will be persecuted because Jesus was persecuted. Believers will also be persecuted because Jesus divides people. Something we need to understand. Uh, Jesus, uh, it says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. People think that Jesus is all about peace. This is what he says. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law 
against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus brings division. He came to bring peace between God and man. But as he does so, he creates division between man and man. Father and sons, daughters and mothers, brothers and sisters. So we need to understand that our faith in Jesus Christ might cause division between us and our closest friends. It might bring division between you and your closest relatives, your loved ones. But it is far better to be divided from your loved ones than to be divided from God. It is far better to be ostracized from your family and to stand with Christ than to be loved by your family and walk as an enemy of Jesus. But then I also want to just touch on this very briefly here. Because I think it's something that's worth mentioning. So believers may not be persecuted with the same degree of severity. As we talk about persecution, in some ways here in America, it can be very abstract, very obscure. I understand that because as you look around, we have a lot of religious freedoms in our country. And so I do want to mention that believers may not be persecuted with the same degree of severity. But persecution is still to be expected in our world. See, some of you in this room may have experienced some pretty severe persecution. I don't know all of you as well as I know some others. Some of you may know what it is like to be persecuted. Some of you may have been cut off from your families. I don't know, maybe some of you have left your home behind because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you may have been rejected or disowned by your family or friends. Thinking even ahead now, God may even call some of you away from this place to another location around the globe where persecution is far more intense, where believers are being killed every day for their faith. We should also recognize that we have brothers and sisters in Christ right now who cannot meet as we do, who cannot have nice fancy signs outside saying, hey, come on in, we're here, out of fear of death. We do have it good, but there may be some of you who may leave from this place, who God may call elsewhere to suffer for Jesus Christ. And you know what? Some of you may also be called to remain here for the rest of your life. Working at a desk job where maybe you catch a few dirty glances because your coworkers know that you're a believer. I don't know what persecution will look like in the United States over the next 5, 25, 50, or even 500 years. But whether you face death or dirty looks, follow Jesus. No matter what persecution comes your way, determine to follow Christ. Determine to live for him. So just as a means of encouragement, keep witnessing. Share the good news of Jesus Christ. No matter what persecution you face, Be a witness for Jesus wherever he places you. Be faithful. You might experience persecution, but your persecution might also result in somebody else's salvation. And as you rely on, or as you witness for Christ, rely on the Holy Spirit. There's such a a wonderful comfort to us in this passage that the Spirit gives us utterance. 
As we go and we seek to proclaim Christ, we can rely on him. We can fall back on him, and he gives us strength. He gives us the words to speak. When we know that persecution does provide opportunities for gospel proclamation. We see here in verse 10 that the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. You can take it to the bank. That's a promise. This is all of these other prophecies come to fruition. This is also going to come to fruition. The gospel is going to go forth. Maybe you need to consider how is God going to use me to accomplish that task? Maybe you ought to consider where is God taking me? Maybe you're a university student. You're wondering after graduation, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? How am I going to serve the Lord? You may, may be in the middle of your life thinking, man, I, I've been here for an awful long time. I've been serving God for an awful long time, but maybe he wants me to do something else for him. What can you do to accomplish this task? There are still others around the world. There are others here in our community who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without hearing, they will die and suffer an eternity of separation from Jesus. That needs to sink in. As we reflect on the end, we need to know that others need to hear the good news before the end comes. And just as Jesus promises that the gospel will go forth, we ought to consider how can we take it forth? How can we go to make disciples of all nations? Just as the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations, we also need to understand that the gospel will be proclaimed by suffering servants. Jesus says, you will be delivered over. You will stand on trial. Why? For my name's sake. You will do these things to be my witnesses. So as we go and as we experience persecution, as our brothers and sisters in Christ experience persecution around the world, they do it for Jesus. So we can stand boldly. We can stand confidently knowing that the Spirit stands with us as we go and as we face trials, as we face difficulty, knowing that persecution provides for proclamation. That as we go, even as we may suffer, potentially even die, the gospel is able to go forth. Consider the apostles. They all died for their faith in Jesus Christ. But without the faithful witness of these men... Christianity dies out. If they did not go forth after Jesus commissioned them post his resurrection, Christianity ends with them. But they went forth. They were bold in their witness and they served Christ to their deaths. And the gospel advanced. As we consider our lives, may we live for Jesus Christ. May we endure as his faithful witnesses and as his faithful servants, knowing that even if we die, the gospel goes forth. So keep witnessing. Keep enduring. Following Jesus is not easy. My prediction, it's most likely going to get harder. But you know what? Others have had it much harder than we have. So let's keep enduring. Let's keep fighting the good fight of the faith. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. There's a metaphor throughout Scripture that we run a race as believers. Let's run our race with endurance, knowing that Jesus ran it first, that he has already gone to the cross. He has already suffered in our place. So let's continue to faithfully endure behind him, no matter what opposition we face. 
And Jesus says here at the very end that those who endure to the end will be saved. That doesn't necessarily mean that we are saved by our endurance or we are saved by our efforts. We are saved by God's grace through faith. We also understand that scripture preaches that true faith is an enduring faith. Now, Danny Aiken here says, Perseverance is the proof that our proclamation, or that our, our, sorry, our profession is real. So as we go, as we proclaim Christ, as we profess Christ, let's also endure no matter what opposition we face for Christ. I just want to end by an encouragement from Paul here. Paul, the man who was shipwrecked, beaten, and beheaded for Jesus, said this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we know that following Jesus may be costly. We may endure light, momentary afflictions, but endurance is worth it, for endurance yields an eternal reward. And as we conclude our message today, we're going to we're going to finish here just by having a time of prayer, a time of responding to the word this morning. So I'm going to invite you to pray. Pray where you are. Pray silently. Kneel down. Whatever posture of prayer you need to respond in right now. We're going to have a few minutes of prayer, and then I'm going to come back afterwards. We're going to wrap up in prayer, and then we're going to continue worshiping and song together. So let's pray together.